Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Rabina podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. In a world that is dominated by narratives of fear, anxiety, and worry, what does it mean that joy is not dependent on outward circumstances, but on the inner state of one's heart? You've joined us in our series, Philippians, where we are exploring what Paul meant when he wrote to have joy in everything and the importance of living in unity among believers for the sake of the gospel. We pray that this message is a blessing. Okay, so Philippians 2. At the end, I'll say this is the Word of the Lord and you can respond, thanks be to God. Here we go. If you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if any comfort for His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one, one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Jai. It's my privilege today to uh, be preaching as we continue our story in Philippians. Hey, how are you, Goldie? Thanks for waiting. No, I'm kidding. The youth need to uh, head out. If you're a teenager in the room and you want to head on out, that'd be fantastic. Um, If you're a teenager in the room and you want to sit next to your mum for the service, trust me, they probably want you to head on out for the service, um, which would be fantastic as well. Thanks so much, friends. Hey, as the kids are leaving, um, this is a beautiful passage of Scripture. It's actually, weirdly, um, a piece of trivia. It's the first piece of Scripture I memorised, more than one verse, a chunk of Scripture. This, this passage was the first I memorised as a young man. Um, and I'm a bit nervous about preaching it today. So would you join with me online and in the room? Would you join with me as we pray? Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come before Your Word today, I'm so thankful today for the promise that Your Word never returns void. I'm so thankful today that You don't need me, Father. You speak powerfully through Scripture. God, I pray, would you use me as your vessel today? Use us as a community to hear your voice, to hear your word, that we would be shaped and formed. That new life would be a place marked by humility, a place of others focused, that your kingdom come, your will be done. Less of me me, and more of you. All God's people said, Amen. Friends, before I get started, I didn't mention this first service. By the way, I'm actually going on holidays for two weeks next week. Sometimes when I'm not here, people are like, oh, slacking off again, are we? So just letting you know, uh, next week I won't be here. I'll be on holidays with my family. Praise the Lord. Having said that, I want to let you know about my, one of my favourite scenes in my favourite movies of all time. Who here has not yet seen Remember the Titans? 
Who's not seen Remember the Titans? Friends, Mother's Day gift to yourself. Go home and watch. It is a phenomenal movie. It's one of the best, I think. It stars Denzel Washington, who I think is one of my favourite actors of all time. He's a great man. And there's this movie follows Denzel Washington, who is known as Coach Boone in the movie. He's an African-American coach. And he gets asked to coach a team of predominantly white males in a, in a town with deep racial divide. And he's, he's tasked with bringing onto the team African-American males to have this kind of racial integration of white and black people together serving on a team. But you can imagine a movie set in the 1950s and 60s, this movie isn't just about winning games, it becomes about overcoming racial strife and the disunity between two communities who the world around them is saying, you can't get along. And it becomes clear as the movie starts that the racial tension is rife, it is thick. And so Denzel Washington and his coach team takes the team of of white and black young men away onto a retreat. And as they're on this retreat, it gets worse. The tensions increase. So one morning, Denzel Washington, Coach Boone wakes up. He wakes everyone up at 4am and pulls them out into the field. And he says, today we're going running. If you don't keep up with me, don't come back. Just run on home. Here we go. And he takes off running and all the young men following him together. They're heaving, they're panting. It's a hard run. And after a couple of hours of running, he finally pauses in the middle of a field filled with with gravestones. And he says, do you know what this land is? This is the field of Gettysburg. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Gettysburg War, in the, the, the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War, uh, hundreds of years ago, one of the greatest battles fought in the Civil War in America. Tens of thousands, over 50,000 men lost their life in that moment. And Denzel Washington, sits there with men, both black and white before him on a field soaked with the blood of men who gave their lives that racism may no longer exist in America. And he says this, he says, I'm gonna tell you about the little known field you stand on say called Gettysburg. This green field right here painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys, smoke and lead pouring through their bodies. Listen to their souls today, men. Their souls would tell you how they killed their brother with malice in their heart, how hatred destroyed their family. You listen and you take a lesson from the dead. And here's where it gets, like it tingles down my spine. Every time I watch the movie, he says, if we don't come together here, right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. I don't care if you like each other or not, but you will respect each other. And maybe, just maybe, we'll play this game like men. And there's this moment in the field where like everyone watching, it's just like, I'm gonna flip and play some Grudine right now. This is amazing. Like you you get pumped and the whole movie shifts in this moment, why? Because you see, Coach Boone understood something. Whilst we are disunified, we can't achieve the mission. When we are not a team, we can't win the game. If we aren't willing to lay down our life for the person who serves alongside us, then we are nothing but a shambles and a dysfunctional show. How does this relate to the book of Philippians? I believe Philippians chapter two, verse one to 11 is Paul's coach, coach boon moment where he writes to the Philippian church and he says to this to them, if there is any goodness, if there's anything that Jesus Christ has done in your life, then know this, we must be unified. Now he's not writing this because the Philippian church has it all together. We actually find out later in the book of Philippians that there's this deep cause of argument and strife between two parties in the Philippian church. And Paul is saying this. He's saying what Coach Poon would say, if we cannot come together on this ground, we too will be destroyed. Why does this matter for us today? Because something we don't talk a lot 
about during church is unity. Is the idea that Jesus actually prayed a prayer to the Father in heaven. He said, God, make them one as you and I are one. Which means this, that that person sitting next to you is meant to be more than just someone warming a seat. They're on your team. They're part of your family. That's what Paul's talking about. There is a unity that's meant to run through the blood of those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, that what unifies us is greater than what could disunify us in the world. Why is this important? Because we live in a time in history where maybe racial segregation isn't always an issue. I'm saying it can still be an issue in our day, but it's not always the big issue that disunifies communities. There are other things at play. We have such a polarising of opinions. If I was to stand up here today and, and talk about the Liberal Party or the Labour Party or the Green Party, I'd lose half of you already. You'd be like, ah, oh, here we go again, someone who's already wrong. If I was to stand up today, I mean, we're about to go into a stage and season of life, the state of origin, the greatest moment of disunity in our state where we work out which is better. We all know the answer is the Maroons in Jesus' name. If you go for the Blues, I hear, you know, there are a bunch of other churches on the Gold Coast looking for people. There's this, there's this sense where, where there are things that disunify us. There are things that, I mean, I've got parents. I've got, I'm a parent of three, well, two, soon to be three children. All you have to do to know how much disunity is there is talk to another parent about how they raise their children. And already you're like, oh, I wouldn't do that. And they're thinking, oh, I wouldn't do that. And already it's like, which pram did you buy? Oh, you bought the wrong one. All those mothers out there know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just a pram. And there's this sense where things disunify us. And Paul knows this. He's saying exactly what Coach Boone is saying. If we're not careful, what disunifies people in the world will disunifies people in the church. And here in the church, we are meant to be a place that is unified more than we're disunified. Now, if you're a non-Christian in the room today, Maybe you got dragged along by mum or dad, you're a teenager and you're sitting here going, why on earth am I listening to a dude in a suit? That's such a good question. Moving right along. There's this sense though, if you are a non-Christian today, today's passage actually isn't for you. It's actually for those people who call themselves Christians. So I would love you to lean in and hear how Christians are meant to live. And I would encourage you, hold us accountable for this. Because there is too much disunity in a church that Jesus died to unify. And if we do not come together on this hallowed ground, friends, I tell you this right now, our mission of seeing more people more like Jesus, our vision of bringing renewal to the Uniting Church and the nation of Australia, it will be all for nothing because we will not be together. We will be disunified. So what does unity look like? Paul begins in the first verse, it'll be on the screen behind me. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. What's Paul's hope? Hey, I want you to be like-minded, having the same love, the same Spirit and of one mind. Paul's saying this, you wanna know what brings Paul joy? When Paul's sitting in his prison cell chained to a Roman guard and he's writing this letter and he's saying, man, you know what brings me joy? Not freedom, not the lack of chains. Man, it would be thinking that the Philippian church is one. Why? Because churches are sometimes the most confusing places in the world. Have you ever rocked up to church and looked at the people around you and be like, why on earth am I here? Who the heck are these people that I'm going to church with right now? I'm not sure that I like coming to church with half of these people. Have you ever thought that? Hands up if you're thinking about the person you're sitting next to right now. <laughs> I think you two are together, so that's your problem. <laughs> There's a sense where, where actually we should think that. You should look around this room and think to yourself, 
man, I don't know if it wasn't for church, I'm not sure I'd ever be in a room with some of these people because that's what the church should look like. I think that. I think that about John Morris, our pastor, our executive pastor all the time. He knows I'm saying this, by the way. He's not in the room right now, but he's aware. John and I are so not alike. John is like cool, number one. He was popular in school. He just built a treehouse for his kids, just like in his spare time. Whenever I grab a tool and head outside, Sarah goes, do you know what you're doing with that? Maybe you should ask John. Should we get John around? And I'm like, no, we shouldn't get John around. You know, and then John, number one, he likes $1 coffees from 7-Eleven. I like good coffee. We're very different people, <laughs> right? And if we were in the world, I tell you right, right now, we probably wouldn't be friends. I'd want to be his friend, but I'm weird. He probably wouldn't want to hang out with me. So why am I so close with John? I love him like a brother. We are tight. You want to know why? Because what unifies us is greater than what disunifies us. We have a common Saviour named Jesus. We follow him together. That even though there are times where John and I are like, hey, hey, let's hang out. And it's like, what do you want to do? And we're like, probably nothing together. We still love each other so much. Why? Because what draws us together is greater than what disunifies us. You should be confused as to why you go to the small group you go to. If you go to the small group you go to and like, oh man, everyone's exactly like me. I really like these people. You're in the wrong small group. It's not a small group that reflects the Kingdom of God. Let me tell you that right now. Because the Kingdom of God should be confusing. In the Philippian church, you remember week number one? Who do we have? Lydia, a businesswoman. This dude that's a Roman jailer and probably this woman, this young girl that got freed from demon possession and they're all hanging out together, sharing cheese and crackers over small group reading the Bible. They probably would not have been found in the same room except for the grace of God. Unity is one of the greatest things the church has to preach the fruit of the Gospel. How come right now there are blue collar workers, white collar workers, unemployed, employed, single parents, married parents. Why is there such a different array of people in the room? It's not because we all have the same background, it's because we all have the same Saviour. And friends, if you're here today, let me tell you this. The only thing you need to know that calls you to belong here is that you are someone that is called to be a child of God, an image bearer. No matter where you've come from or who you are, you can find home and family here. No matter your skin colour, your race, your background, who, what you believed when you were young or where you come from, this can be your home because it's mine. It's ours. This is what Paul's talking about. But then he says this thing. He says, but there's something that can actually break this unity. There's something that can actually hurt the church, hurt the community. What does he say? Two things. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Everyone say nothing. Everyone say Nothing. I'm saying that because I think some of us may have heard do some things. It's okay sometimes to be selfishly ambitious. It's okay sometimes to look a little longer in the mirror at yourself. No, Paul doesn't say that. Paul says this, do nothing. Ambition's not wrong, friends. I think Christians should be the most ambitious people in the world. We should have huge goals. We should believe God can move in power and might. We should dream and dare greatly. But the difference between ambition and selfish ambition is motivation. What and who are you ambitious for? And you only know this in your own heart because Christians are really good at looking ambitious for the kingdom. Oh man, I'm just, in, you know, I'm just really praying and inviting people to church. But as a pastor, I can tell you this right now, I've got to guard my heart that I'm not inviting people to church just so that I can have a bigger church. Just so that we can say, hey, you know, there's a lot of people at New Life. Now we're doing it for the kingdom of God. Friends, selfish ambition creeps into our hearts. In fact, the word for selfish ambition in Hebrew was the same word that ancient writers would use for ancient politicians during election time. They, it's this word of lectioneering. What is this? It's self-promotion. It's self-promotion. 
Now the problem with self, selfish ambition and vainglory is no one ever really comes down the front. And as I'm standing here as a pastor in small group, no one ever really walks up and goes, hey, can you guys just pray for me? I've just got a lot of selfish ambition and vainglory right now. I just want to repent. You know, as we don't really talk about that. Like those two things and greed, they're the things that no one really ever confesses in the church. But maybe those three things are actually the main core of the problem. And what God is saying, what Paul is saying to the Philippian church is like, guys, there's selfish ambition. If you're positioning yourself, if you're using people to forward yourself, if you're trying to have your own agenda, you will destroy and break community. Second thing he says is vain conceit. Another translation says vain glory. What's that idea? It's this idea of status that we need to be seen. We need to be known. And friends, what Paul's warning is like, if we're not careful, friends, if we don't guard our church against this, these things creep into the life of the church and they break apart community and we think that it's actually about preferences. Well, we, we, we disguise it in saying, oh, well, that's just the way I like things. Or we disguise it in like, oh, well, I just like this group of people, not that group of people. Or, or I'm just doing this because, you know, there's something that would benefit me. We, we disguise it with nice language, but really it's selfish ambition and vainglory. Let me just give you some examples of things that you may have heard of your own mouth or other things that other people have said. I can't believe they don't know who I am. I would never volunteer in that ministry. If only the pastor had invited me personally, how dare they sit in my seat? Why is that the one we laugh at? But there's another one. I don't need to go to church today. I don't feel like it. I don't like that song. It's not where really, they're not really the kind of people I would usually hang out with. These are statements that creep in and we think that they're just statements of honesty and vulnerability, and maybe they are, but they're also statements that have put me at the center. Some of you see and be like, what, am I not allowed to miss church? That's not the point, friends. We, we, we sometimes think that gathering together in small groups or community is about me. What do I get? Do you know that's nowhere in the Bible? Nowhere in the Bible you, go, you said, hey, you should rock up, you should tune in, you should jump online, you should be here today so that you get something. Actually, friends, it's meant to be about others. When was the last time you woke up and you're like, hey, I don't really feel like going to church today, but I'm gonna rock up because someone might need me to pray for them. Someone might need me to hear they're struggling and I need to actually serve them by cooking them a meal this week. When was the last time you rocked up to church and your disposition was not, I hope they give me a good car park, but your disposition was like, hey, how can I serve others today? This is the thing that's meant to be markers of the church, but we sit, we complain, we talk about church as something that we're meant to consume, where it's meant to be something that pulls us out of ourselves and into community for the sake of other people. This is meant to be the defining factor of the church. It's been said so often, we allow the selfishness of the world to creep into what we're doing here. Billy Graham would say this, selfishness is the most destructive force in human relationships. Selfishness is a sign of spiritual immaturity, says Rick, Rick, Warren, Rick Warren, while selflessness is a mark of spiritual maturity. Why? Why is selfishness so poisonous? Because it was selfishness, selfish ambition and vainglory which broke the world in the first place, friends. If you're not a Christian yet, lean in now. Let me tell you why the world is the way it is. It's because there were these people named Adam and Eve and they were created by God to live in perfect harmony with Him, be outwardly focused and think about other people. And then a serpent came along and, and this, the devil in the form of a serpent said to Eve, what did she say? God doesn't want you to eat that fruit. Why? Because He doesn't want you to be equal with Him. 
What is he tempting her with? Selfish ambition, vain conceit. You could be greater. What does Eve and Adam do? They eat. Why? Because in that moment, theologians say in Latin, it's incavatus in say, the heart curves in on itself when it was meant to be curved outwards. And I said it many times, so I'm blue in the face. You'll know this if you come to New life a lot. The core of all sin in your life is selfishness. Think of the last time you stuffed up. Think of the last time you did something wrong. Were you sitting there thinking, I'm just really thinking about other people when I do this. No, I'm at the centre. And Paul says, we have to live in a different way. We have to live in a different way. What is this different way? He calls on and he says, instead in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I used to be a Salvation Army youth pastor. Salvation Army is one of the greatest social justice organisations and churches um, around the world. And the Salvation Army was started by a man named William Booth. And William Booth lived Philippians 2 so beautifully. One Christmas when William had to write a letter to all of his officers, hundreds of officers around the world, a Christmas letter to encourage them, inspire them. How should they live in the middle of a society that was calling them to be selfish? Now, he wanted to use an economy of words because he had to write so many Christmas cards. And so he had to come up with one word to inspire them, to invoke the gospel, to encourage them to keep leaning in. So he wrote one word on everyone's Christmas card. It was simply this, others. Others. That's the heart of the church. That's the heart of a transformed life. Others. But how many of our lives scream self, me, I? Well, Paul's saying here, instead, in humility, value others above yourself. When Paul, he's being pretty clear, he'd be like, I wonder what he means when he says value others above yourself. Here's you. Here's where Paul's saying you should value others. Simply that. It's not complicated, but it is definitely challenging. Because we live our life built on our own comfort, don't we? Pursuing our own agendas, our own priorities. We've all got plans straight after church that we better hope no one gets in our way. Someone better not cut me off, interrupt me, call me, text me. Like I've got my things to do. And Paul's like, yeah, but what would it look like if your priorities were here? You still attended to them, but you put others above them. What Paul is doing here is he's creating an economy of relationship that if we all did it, there would be no needy people in our midst. If people down the back there cared for people down the front, and if people down the front here were caring for people down the back, you guys here were thinking of someone over here and we're all just thinking of someone else in the church. Here's the thing, no needy people would be in our midst. Why? Because we would look after each other. But what ends up happening? Well, but yeah, but Michael, like I'm just, you know, I've got, to, I've got to look after my own. The economy of this community, of this relationship breaks down when one person chooses selfishness first. That's what Paul's saying. Instead, don't only look to your own needs, look to the needs of others. But how do we do this? What's the driving force? What's the thing in our heart? He uses a word, a great word. He says, in humility. In humility. We don't talk about humility enough because I think we, we know how to pretend humility. But I don't know if we know humility. 
oh, friends, I'm not great. You know, you know I wasn't really that good. You know, thank you so much. But, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just a thing. And we, we think humility is thinking less about ourselves, like, like this sense of demoting ourselves less than we are. That's not humility. That's neediness. Humility, C.S. Lewis would say, is this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. This is the humility that, that Paul's talking about. How many times do you have people be like, oh, you know, like, I'm not that great, but they've chosen me to serve and, and they're talking like a lot. Can I tell you how you know if that person's humble or not? When was the last time they spoke about anything other than them? The key of humility, friends, isn't thinking badly about you. It's not thinking about you at all. And I really struggle with that. Do I have any fellow strugglers in the room? Three of us. Hey, if everyone else wants to head on out, we're just going to... We're just going to get real down the front here. Thank God the rest of you are humble. It's hard. But Paul says, this is the key to humility. This is the key to community. Again, a guy named Edmund Hillary was a great climber. Climbed um, Mount Everest with Tenzing Norgay. And Edmund Hillary became one of the most celebrated climbers around the world. Uh, Mount Everest, for those you don't know, one of the tallest peak, the tallest peak in the world. He became the high commissioner from New Zealand to Nepal, to India and that area. People celebrated him. He knew what he was doing. Like he could take on any mountain in the world. And one day, Sir Edmund Hillary went back to the Himalayas for a trek with some friends. And he came across a group of people who were about to scale an ice wall that he was also going to go up and they said oh can we get a photo with you and he said yeah I'd love that so he took a photo with them and as they're taking a photo and they're posing with their ice picks this other traveler walked along the path and he didn't know who Sir Edmund Hillary was and he walks up to Edmund Hillary and he goes oh uh, sorry mate just sort of come along see you about to do the ice wall hey I don't you're not holding your ice pick correctly can I just teach you the correct hold that yeah just like that that's right yeah you won't die then hey I hope you're okay uh, it's everyone's first time sometime hey so and he keeps on walking off and Edmund Hillary, the story goes, didn't say a thing other than, hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. A man who climbed ice walls hundreds of times, who knew how to do ice picking better than anybody else, had no moment where he said, hey, you better, do you know who I am? Why? Because in that moment, that person didn't need to be humiliated. Edmund Hillary didn't make it about him. Thank you. And who ended up walking away actually being the one who would have been celebrated and known as truly humble. The guy who walked into a situation telling everyone what he knew or the humble world champion climber. Thank you so much for teaching me. Humility is a rare quality in our world, friends, but it's definitely needed. John Dixon, a historian who actually studied humility throughout time would say this, humility, friends, is the ability to hold your power for the good of others, not personal gain. Not personal gain. What does this mean? What does this look like? It's the person who actually steps into a room and realises they've got the most to offer and so they have the most to give. Now I sit here and I go, well, the challenge for us is we're all going to leave today and be like, okay, now I've just got to think about others. I've got to think about others. I've got to think about others. And then someone's going to cut me off in traffic and be like, how, how dare you cut me off? Do you know who I am? We're like, oh no, others, 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 right? 
And the problem is, is that when we hear sermons, we actually fall into the trap of behaviour modification of, oh, just be a better person. And if you're a non-Christian in the room today, I've got to tell you this, Christianity isn't about making you a better person. It's not about behaviour modification. We believe in spiritual transformation. And Paul believes this too. And so he points to them, the only way that they can become a humble church and other-centred church is by pointing them to the one that can change their hearts and their lives. And so what does he say? He says, so friends, how do you do this? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Do you know they've done studies and they found that for the majority of ancient history, humility was a character of weakness. No one wanted to be humble. The only two people you should be humble before in ancient Greece and ancient Rome was before the emperor and before gods. Everyone else you were meant to strive and push down. 2000, well, here we are today in 2023 and humility is no longer seen as a sign of weakness. How many times, even in secular organisations, is humility seen as a sign of strength? And they actually have studied, when did this change? And do you know, secular universities have been out of point, when? 2,000 years ago, a humble carpenter said that he may have been the son of God but he didn't come with armies or generals. And historians have found that it was the life and witness of Jesus Christ that sent a ripple through the world of humility that made it no longer a vice, but a virtue. So when Paul says, have this, which is the same mind as Christ Jesus, he doesn't say, hey, this is what I want you to do. Try and be like Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, you know, try and, try and edge your way towards other people like Jesus. No, 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 he says this. You can have the same mind as Christ Jesus. And you wanna know what Christ Jesus' mind was? Nowhere else in Scripture does someone tell us, this is what Jesus was thinking. This is what His motivation was. This is exactly why and how He did what He did. This is an insight into the person of God. And the next moment what Paul does is he walks us through a hymn where he says, hey, let me give you a key to humility. Stop thinking about you and focus on Jesus and something will shift and transform in your life life and heart. So let's do that for the next couple of moments. What does Paul say? Hey, have you the same mind that is yours in Christ Jesus? What is that mind? Simply this, Jesus, who was equal in nature with God. It'll be on the screen behind me. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Paul paints a picture of Jesus here, unlike anything we've seen in this world. He says, number one, Jesus was God. This is good theology, friends. We've got to hear this. Jesus didn't become God. Jesus didn't get promoted to be God. Jesus didn't, you know, get born into the world. And when someone thought He was good enough and had made enough tables, oh, maybe you could be God for a day. This is like Bruce Almighty. No, Jesus was God. John 1 verse 1. The, the Word was, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word was Jesus. Jesus is God. He had the status of the one who could create universes for a living. That's who Jesus is. And what did He do with His status? What did He do with His power? What did He do with the equality with the triune, Father, Son and Holy Spirit? It says this, He did not use it for His own advantage. We don't do that, do we? We get promoted, we get power, we get a bit more money. And immediately what we think about is me. That wasn't the heart of Christ. He had everything in the world. He had all authority. And here's the thing. He did not use it for himself. The Bible verse goes on and it says this. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very form of a servant being made in human likeness. He made himself nothing. This is a theological term called kenosis, where Christ, it says, emptied himself What does that mean? 
it means he limited his divinity. God is omnipresent. But Jesus, whilst he walked the earth, whilst he could have chosen to be, chose not to be omnipresent, which means everywhere at once, he chose to be confined to a geographic location. He limited his divine abilities. It wasn't limited for him. He chose to do it. Why? Because he wanted to walk in the path of humility. Have you seen the show called Undercover Boss? Who has seen Undercover Boss? Great. For the rest of you, another Mother's Day gift for you today. You can go home and watch. Undercover Boss follows like CEOs who for a season, they like a CEO of a fast food company, will take on the disguise and come in as a new burger flipper, right? Like the lowest person or a janitor in their organisation. And the, the, the show follows like the CEOs acting as burger flippers disguised. And it's funny because you've got this burger flipper who's really the CEO being screamed at by a manager. like, you've got to work faster. And you can see the CEO's heads going, I could fire you any second, but you don't know who I am. And it's like the whole point is they get to the end of the show and the CEO comes out. It's like, we're going to improve our organisation and I'm going to bless you with money and all this stuff. But in that moment, the burger flipper doesn't stop being the CEO, but he limits his access to that power that he might know what it's like to be an employee and walk alongside them. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. Why? Why? Because to undo the human mistake, Jesus had to fully enter into the human experience to show that it was possible for one man to live a perfect life selflessly for others. So he made himself nothing for you. He didn't cling to status. He let it go. To show us friends, the way up is actually down. The way forward is actually on our knees in service. And he pinpointed it in this climatic moment of his life. What is it saying? Being found in human appearance, he became, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Ancient historians would say this, that the Roman Empire used to impose death on the, on the countries that they overtook by crucifying people to remind them that they were nothing. The Appian Way, one of the biggest roads in Italy, was actually used to be lined with thousands of people who'd been crucified. It was the Roman way of saying, you are nothing to us. Roman citizens, it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen because it was seen as so shameful, so humiliating, so degradating, so degradating that it was like beyond what a Roman citizen. And Jesus willingly was crucified. Why? He chose the lowest form of communication, the most of execution, the most humiliating form of execution. Why? Because he wanted to show us what it truly looked like when we lay down our lives and say, not my priorities first, but others before me. And he did it for you. And she was hanging on a cross. With his, with his spear pierced side, his nail pierced hands. Do you think he was sitting there going, I wonder what my priorities are right now. This doesn't feel too good. He would have been in excruciating pain. What kept him there was you. It was you. And a little discomfort in our lives and we immediately go back to self. But the way of Jesus is no matter how much discomfort, no matter how much pain, He endured the cross. Why? Because He loved you enough to undo the selflessness of our heart by living a self-sacrificial love for us. And He says today, are you willing to live the same way? Are you willing to do it for each other? It's the only thing that's gonna solve the world. Politicians won't be able to solve it. Human power won't be able to solve it. Only human hearts that say, God, uncurve my heart. Make me selfless again by the transforming power of your forgiveness. That's the way forward, friends. And I tell you this right now, if we become a church that is more others-focused than self-focused, we'll be a church that causes the darkness to tremble. 
Because people will come in here, they'll be known, they'll be loved and we'll go into the world seeking to save and serve and save the lost. Friends, which way is your heart curved today? You know, I see so much humility in our community here at New Life. It's beautiful. Every week we have car park guys serve out in the car park, rain, hail or shine. Why? Because they want you to be able to get the right car park for you and your family. Some of you are like, oh, it wasn't the right car park this morning. I'll tell you that much for free. We have CEOs who work five days a week and come and serve in our kids' life ministry on Sundays. Why? Because they believe in the next generation. We've got people who work hard all week long and volunteer on elders and council and committees. We have the people who, who finish work at 6.30, rush home to make dinner for their small group because they're like, we've got to be a community of love. And I just want to celebrate and thank you for these selfless, sacrificial ways you're loving. But there are other moments and other times in our community where there are still some of us friends who think it's someone else's job to serve, someone else's job to love, someone else's job to advocate for the poor, to care for the needy, to bake for those who can't bake for themselves. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's us. And if we don't come together now around unity, then we will not achieve the vision and mission God has before us. It's gonna take everyone. But any selflessness in this community will derail it. So we've got to come before God with humility, say, God, uncurve our heart that we might serve. In John 13, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when the pain of the cross was before Him, He didn't sit in His room trembling with fear. He gathered with His disciples. And as they all jostled for position, the Bible tells us that in that moment, John 13, all authority in heaven on earth was recognised as being given to Jesus. The disciples knew who He was. When He had all the power in the room, do you wanna know what Jesus did with the power? He stood up, took off His outer garments, He wrapped it around His waist. He knelt down at Peter's feet and He washed them. Washed the dung, the dirt, the muck, the horribleness off them. Peter goes, Jesus, you shouldn't do this. I should be doing this for you. And Jesus says, if you do not let me do this for you, you cannot be clean. But you should do this for each other. Friends, hear me. Please do not go into the courtyard and take off someone's shoes and wash their feet today. That is the wrong application of this message. But do this. How are you washing people's feet? There are non-Christians in the church who are, I literally, I was talking to a new Christian a couple months ago and she just said to me, Michael, why, why are Christians more selfish than non-Christians? I'm like, oof. It's a good question. My answer, oh, this is where all the broken people live. But our actual answer should be, we put others first always. Because Jesus did. How are you being called to do that today? Let me pray. Gracious God, right now, we just pause before you and ask, would you just move in power? Holy Spirit, what are you saying? What are you doing? I just want to ask if there are some non-Christians in the room today or people who have been far from Christ for too long. And when I've talked about selfishness, you really sense and can see the selfishness in your life and you want to be set free from it. I want to let you know, online or in the room, this isn't going to happen out of effort, but surrender. 
coming before God saying, God, I no longer want to live selfishly. I want to die to myself and live for you. The Bible's clear. All we need to do is repent of our sins and turn to Him and He will transform our hearts. So friends, if, if that's you today and you need Jesus to come and transform your heart today and you want to say sorry for the selfishness and walk in His way, if you're online, you can start responding. Calvin will lead you in that. But if you're in the room, if that's you right now, would you just raise your hand wherever you are? I want to pray for you. You want Jesus to come and transform your heart today and lead you out of selfishness and into selflessness. Would you raise your hand right now? Thank you for those people raising their hand. I see your hands. Thank you. It's awesome. It's awesome. Thank you. Some of you are Christians. Some of you are yet to be Christians. Some of you are hundreds of time doing this. Jesus, I'll just pray for those people who had the courage to raise their hands today. Brothers and sisters in the faith and new people to the faith, He's just saying, Jesus, I no longer want this to be about me. Help me to see others, to live for others, to love others as you loved us. So every Christian in the room and all those who raised hands, we're going to pray this together. Would you repeat this after me? Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my selfishness. Renew my heart. Teach me to live as you lived. Give me your mind. I'm sorry for my sin. Teach me to follow you. In Jesus' name, Amen. And I just sense this one last thing today. I just sense there are people here in the room today who are followers of Jesus, but just the words I get is that your heart has been gripped by selfishness. And today it's just started to really worry you how preoccupied you are with yourself. I just wonder if that's you. Would you just open your hands up in front of you right now? Would you open your hands up in front of you right now? Holy Spirit, I believe in this moment that You are just wanting to transform our hearts. We can't do this on our own, God. I'm such a selfish person left to my own devices. But with You, Jesus, something new has given birth. So may we look at You. May we exalt You and glorify You. And in all things, would You transform our hearts that we would not live for ourselves, but for others. God, would You make new life a place where we die to ourselves and live for Christ. Where true love is experienced here because we've experienced true love. In Jesus' Name. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.